they had quickly arranged for Dustin to preach uh, at their church on Sunday, and uh, Dustin was more than glad to come and preach to us as well, and we are very appreciative of that. So let's bring up Dustin, and he is going to serve us by bringing us into the word. a certain kind of encounter, um, but as it, as it is, uh, I get to be here today. I'll take it. Any excuse to be with you is a good excuse, and uh, I'm very happy to be here. Glad I didn't get sick and that I could fill in for you, and um, uh, man, I haven't seen you in a couple years, and now I get to be here twice in two months, so good to be with you, Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena. Thanks for having me. Let's turn our attention together to God's Word. Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter Acts chapter 5. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, our attention is on verses 12 through 42. And while you find your place, a question. What are some of the things that churches do to hurt their reputation with the community? Things churches do to hurt their reputation. Scandals certainly have to be at the top of the list. You can just go... Uh, Go Google church. Well, don't do this, but you could Google church scandals, and there are plenty of them uh, waiting for you in the news. Judgmentalism, unhelpful uh, political activism, maybe. How about this for hurting our reputation? Being bad tippers at the restaurants after church. Come on, we can do better. Well, right before the passage I'm about to read to you in Acts, an event took place which by all accounts should have hurt the reputation of the first century church. God struck down two church members who lied to make themselves look generous. It's the famous account of Ananias and Sapphira. It comes right before our passage today. Terrible PR, right, for the church and for God. I mean, why would God do such a thing? Certainly going to hurt and halt the progress of the gospel as it's been making its way out from Jerusalem here in the beginning of Acts? Apparently not. <laughs> Striking down two church members for some reason doesn't halt the progress of the gospel at all. In fact, we find here another summary statement describing how the kingdom of Christ just keeps advancing rapidly. But with its growth comes a growth in opposition as well. The chapter I'm about to read to you presents two things that we should expect as Christians and as members of a church. Two things we should expect. Encouraging progress, right? Encouraging progress and increased opposition. Both of those at the same time, right next to each other, running parallel. This passage is going to show it to us, but this passage also is going to reveal strikingly how God powerfully works both through encouraging progress and through opposition. So follow along with me in your Bibles as I read Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42, and then I will pray. Acts 5, 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all... Healed, verse 17, but, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people 
all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. Verse 23, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Marching right along verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He, too, perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The very words of God addressed to us this afternoon, let me pray for understanding. Lord, these are no ordinary words, and this is no ordinary book. These are your words, given to your people to make us wise for salvation through your Son, and to build us up as we seek to live our lives faithfully for him. And so I ask you now to do what only you can do. Illuminate our minds. Speak to our hearts. Comfort us. Convict us. Strengthen our most holy faith. That you might be glorified through us and we might enjoy you as we serve you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Immediately 
following the fear brought on by the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, we get a startling statement. Verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now, the reason that this is startling is because you would think that sin had crept into the church and therefore maybe perhaps God had withdrawn his blessing from the church. Not at all. God's hand of blessing on the church had not been withdrawn. Quite the opposite. God right here is reaching down. That's what's happening in these signs and wonders. He's reaching down and restoring the lives of broken people through the hands of the apostles. Verse 16 explains precisely what they were doing. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And look at this, they were all healed. The blind, the lame, the deaf, the chronically ill, those with severe spiritual and psychological afflictions were brought to the apostles and miraculously, in a moment, healed. God mercifully and decisively fixing their biggest problems, changing their lives in a moment. So, of course, what happens? Reputation of the apostles grows rapidly. Also, it was mythologizing. I don't know if you noticed this in our, in our passage. Verse 15, a myth. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The text doesn't say they actually got healed doing that. It's an indication of just how incredible their reputation had become. You can get healed by contact with his shadow. Not so sure about that, but that's what people were saying. Now, these men are continuing to minister publicly despite the fact they've already been warned not to. Verse 12 says they were in Solomon's portico, the outer court of the temple in Jerusalem. That was their base of operation. They just set up right in plain sight, right in the middle of Israel's religious and political life. A pretty bold move for guys that have been told not to do that. Risky. Bold. Back in chapter 4, they'd already been told by these Jewish and religious and political leaders to stop preaching the gospel. They'd been threatened, yet here they are doing it anyway. Boldly proclaiming the gospel by the power of God and it's working. It's working. People are getting saved in droves. Verse 14. More than ever. Oh, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. The last time that Luke re recorded this kind of ingathering of new saints, this number of conversions, he gave us a number. 5,000. This time he doesn't even give us a number. Who knows how many people, more than ever, were added. God blessing the preaching of his gospel. However, this is not an entirely good report. Even in the midst of many good things. Some discouraging developments as well. Verse 13. None of the rest dared join them. That is, none of the rest of the church members in Jerusalem. None of the rest dared join them. But the people, the unbelievers in Jerusalem, held the apostles in high esteem. Notice the contrast. People from outside the church respect the apostles and actually aren't afraid to be publicly identified with them. But, but the Christians who knew about the earlier threats shrunk back. They were intimidated, didn't want to get in trouble. We can assume they were afraid of potential persecution. And I wonder for us, Sovereign's Church, I wonder if the people in this passage we most closely resemble are the Christians who were afraid of suffering for the gospel. I feel it personally. A confession here. My life is good, okay? It's comfortable. I don't want to make it more uncomfortable if I don't have to, right? I might want to hide in there in verse 13 with those other folks as well. I find 
the foreword to John Piper's book, Risk is Right, I find this diagnosis penetrating for me personally. Here's what, here's what he writes. We too can retreat into a wilderness of wasted opportunity. We can rest content in casual, convenient, cozy, comfortable Christian lives as we cling to the safety and security this world offers. I feel that pull. Do you feel it? Do you feel that pull? If so, good news, God is pulling us in a different direction. A better one. John Stott describes it this way in his excellent book, The Cross of Christ. Listen to what he writes. Insistence on security, he says, is incompatible with the way of the cross. What daring adventures the incarnation and the atonement were. What a breach of convention and decorum that almighty God should renounce his privileges in order to take human flesh and bear human sin. Jesus had no security except in his Father. So, follow Jesus, is always to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger, and rejection for his sake. In other words, Christianity is risky. Christianity is risky, but those risks are right. Whether we face prosperity or persecution, dignity or disgrace, reception or rejection, we're called by God, as the Apostle Paul would later write in 2 Timothy 1.8. We're called by God not to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's Christian ministry in a nutshell. Or to say it another way, Give your life for the gospel. Give your life for the gospel. But by the very power of God, all of you sitting here who are Christians, witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, no matter the cost. That's what God invites us to here in Acts chapter 5. Why should we take him up on this invitation? To suffer for the gospel. Why should we take him up on it? Let me give you three reasons from the text. This will be our outline for the rest of our time together. I'll give you these three reasons as we go. Reason number one, why should we suffer for the gospel by the power of God? Reason number one, because God is unstoppable. God is unstoppable. The religious leaders in Jerusalem were afraid that their political power and position were threatened by the apostles' popularity. The backstory here is that they'd made a nice deal with the Romans that allowed them a measure of control over their religious and political life. But if they couldn't keep these upstart Christians in line, they would be in trouble with the Roman Empire. And nobody wanted to be in trouble with the Roman Empire in the first century, okay? That was bad news. So the religious elite of Jerusalem respond to all the preaching and healings by, look with me again, verse 17. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, there it is, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Case closed, right? Put them in prison. What are they going to do? That should stop them. Wrong. At this point, if, if this... If this episode in Acts were like an episode of some like cheesy courtroom drama from like the mid-90s, the judge would yell, overruled. That's exactly what God does in response to the efforts of these Jewish religious leaders. He just yells, overruled. He could have found a sneaky way to get them out of prison. Perhaps one of the guards was secretly a Christian or sympathetic to the apostles, or maybe one of the guards' wives had been healed by one of the apostles, so he slips him a key. But, but no, God opts for a much more straightforward approach. He literally has an angel unlock the prison door. Verse 19. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. Man, I would have liked to see that. And brought them out. In other words, overruled. You're going to lock them up? Overruled. God is unstoppable. 
And if God is behind what you are doing, then you too are unstoppable. Later on in the passage, one insightful priest makes this very point, doesn't he? Look, look down, he skip down to verse 38. Gamaliel, here's what he says. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But here it is, the unstoppability of God. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. God is unstoppable. And his plan to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to every corner of this globe, including here in Pasadena, will not be stopped. Not by unrighteous people, not by unrighteous laws, or even by the unjustified murder, torture, persecution of God's people. There is literally nothing the world can do to stop God from saving sinners. You know it. You've sung it this, this afternoon. Even killing the Son of God himself couldn't stop him. And in fact, was the very means by which he was saving the people who persecuted him. His gospel mission cannot be stopped. So we give our lives for the gospel. Because what we're doing is guaranteed to succeed. may not appear to succeed in the short term. There will be a, apparent setbacks. But that word apparent is very important. There are only apparent setbacks for Christians in the gospel in the church. No real setbacks. Because God is unstoppable. God will use our ministry to fulfill his purposes. Whether we're breathing the free air, like we are now, or whether we're stuck behind bars. And who knows what will happen one day. Whether the winds of culture are blowing with us or against us. Whether we have freedom of speech or freedom of religion. Or whether Supreme Court decisions go our way and thank God when they do. God isn't dependent upon any of those things. And his mission can't be stopped. And if we give ourselves to that mission and we will share in his victory. Give your life for the gospel because God is unstoppable. Reason number two. Give your life for the gospel because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That may not seem like a very insightful point. I know pastors who get up, especially guest preachers, are supposed to get up and have these really interesting, provocative points. Not real provocative, right? Not real interesting. But that is literally Peter's answer when he's asked, why are you still preaching the gospel? He just says, because Jesus is Lord, that's why. So that's my point. <laughs> if we go back to the angel's words in verse 20, he gives the apostles the instruction to return to the temple and keep preaching, right? They immediately obey, even though they were just imprisoned for doing that very thing. Okay, verses 20 and 21. Here's the angel's words. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And the words of this life is just more shorthand for the gospel. Speak to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Look, these guys can't be stopped. Now, the poor religious leaders look so silly here, okay? Understandably, they assume the apostles are still in prison, so they send guards to fetch them. But the report they got back was surprising. Verse 23. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Apparently the angel let him out through the back or through some secret compartment in the floor or something like that, right? No, no, they went out through the front door. They went out through the front door and somehow got out without anybody noticing. I don't know what this angel did. I don't know if he put his hand over the eyes of the guards or snapped and made them sleep. Luke doesn't say, but, but they walked right out of the prison and nobody knew. Now, after getting this strange report that the prison's locked and there are no prisoners in there, another messenger runs in with an equally shocking piece of news. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, 
the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So a recap here again. The apostles preach the gospel. They put them in prison. Next morning, they're right back out in the temple preaching the gospel again. Put yourself in the, the religious leader's shoes. How strange is this? We just put these guys in prison. What are they doing back out of prison with no evidence of a jailbreak? Now, the men in charge at this point are not only perplexed, though that would be an understatement, they're perplexed, they're also frightened. Verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Another indication of just how much favor the apostles were enjoying in the city. The guards were afraid that if it appeared the apostles were being arrested again, there would be a mob uprising in the city. And notice, too, another strange development here is that the apostles go without a fight. They could have refused. And man, how interesting would this story have been if the apostles had refused to go with them? That would have been interesting indeed, but not what God planned. In a godly show of respect for the authorities, the authorities who this far have only mistreated them, they go to the council where they are questioned. Verse 27. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That last line is insightful. We don't know if it's real fear or just hyperbole, but, but he insinuates that by preaching about Jesus' death, the apostles are trying to pin it on them and get them in trouble, which does make some sense since Peter has already publicly preached that they were the ones who unjustly put Jesus to death. And spoiler alert, he's about to say it again. However, Peter provides an iconic answer on behalf of the apostles. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, it has been my experience in the last couple of years in particular that people love this verse. Christians in particular love this verse. But I want you to feel not, not cavalier as you read that passage. Think of just how much trouble Peter and the apostles were putting themselves in by saying that. I don't think they said this cavalierly. In fact, they had respected these authorities. I think this is almost said sorrowfully, like we wish we didn't have to disobey you, but we must obey God rather than men. For God is the highest authority. God is the highest authority, and when the commands and laws of men are in contradiction to God, we obey God, not Men, when the world in particular, what's in view here, when the world forbids us from preaching the gospel, we must disobey them. Because God has instructed us to carry the gospel to all peoples, anyone who will listen. The apostles' line of reasoning continues. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Being hung on a tree was a curse according to the Old Testament. It was revolting, shameful to Israelites. It was unthinkable that their Messiah would die in that way. And what they missed, which is something that's actually clearly spoken of in the Bible, think Isaiah 53, what they missed is that the Messiah came to be a curse, to take our curse away. He died to relieve us of the penalty that our sins deserved. 
And he did not stay dead, not at all. God exalted him as ruler, leader here means means pioneer, founder of the church, and savior, the one who delivers from danger, namely the grave danger of sin and God's wrath. But look at particularly Peter's explanation for why God raised Jesus from the dead. He says, end of verse 31, so that Christ could give repentance to the very people who killed him, the people of Israel, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus was exalted as Lord to save. He was exalted to save. Not to condemn, no. He was raised from the dead. And what did he do when he raised from the dead? He continued to show mercy to sinners. And in this moment now, by sending his messengers to speak to them of his death and resurrection. John Stott again describes Jesus' resurrection and his authority as Lord like this. Jesus' resurrection gave him the universal lordship that enabled him both to claim that all authority was now his and to send his church to disciple the nations. He is Lord. None compares to him. And what does he do with his lordship? He sends his people out to announce that sinners can be saved and reconciled to God. That's what he does with his lordship. He rules as a savior. And we share that commission, my friends. We have a commission from this Lord to preach his gospel of repentance and forgiveness. And we must do that. Even if a lesser authority tells us not to, we must obey God, not men. We must preach the gospel. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Nobody else possesses his authority. Nobody else exhibits his grace. Nobody else has good news for sinners like he does. And as we witness to him, as we witness to the world about him, we do the very work that his spirit is doing. Ah, another phrase that should arrest our attention. Peter's last sentence, verse 32. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit co-laborers with the Spirit of God. The Spirit's job is to testify about Jesus Christ and he indwells us and as he does, leads us to do the same thing, testify about Christ. If we have the Spirit, we can't help but talk about the Son. If we have the Spirit, we cannot help but share about the Son of God. We bear witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. We participate in the very work that God himself is doing. And we prove that he is the best Lord. The only one worthy of our allegiance. The only one who it's a delight to serve. It's even a delight to suffer for him as we serve leads me to my final point. Why should we share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God? Point number three. Because suffering is success. God is unstoppable. Jesus is Lord. And suffering is success. Peter's masterful explanation for why he keeps preaching and his seizing this opportunity to preach the gospel does not land well on those who had arrested him. Verse 33, when they heard this, no surprise, they were enraged. They wanted to kill them. Nobody likes being disobeyed, especially when that disobedience may bring serious consequences on the ones being disobeyed. And again, these religious leaders were frightened about what the consequences of an uprising were going to mean for them. They are worried. 
However, a cool-headed, respected teacher calms them all down. Oh, this guy should give like a, he should give a seminar in peacemaking, peacekeeping. Uh, Gamaliel wisely has them put the apostles outside so he can turn down the temperature on this irate council. He tells them the story of two other well-known upstarts, Theodos and Judas the Galilean, who tried to overthrow the establishment and were crushed along with their followers. And he's intoning that if these guys are just like them, the same thing is going to happen to them. They are the example of those whom God, uh, upon whom God is not on their side. But then, as I mentioned earlier, verses 38 through 39, he tells them that if the apostles are doing God's work, they cannot be stopped. And his sage advice works. Look at the end, the very end of verse 39, after he's done speaking. Four little words, excuse me, five little words in English. So, they took his advice. Now, we could just miss that, but that's like a big sigh of relief for the people watching. What's going to happen now? They took his advice. Okay, whoa. God providentially here frees the apostles to continue their ministry through the wise insights of this one priest. But that is not the end of the story, is it? One more thing happens before they can go back about their gospel business. Verse 40, when they called back in the apostles, they beat them. And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And let them go. Three words. That we again could just gloss right over. They beat them. This beating is no small matter. If it's the beating that most scholars believe it was. 39 lashes to the back. No pain meds. No ibuprofen, no neosporin, a painful lashing across the back, ripped clothes, big, bloody sores. If you and I had watched this beating, we would be mortified. And then told them again, stop preaching. Now the apostles' response to this is stranger than fiction. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council. Relieved? No. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And we know the name, the name of Jesus. Why on earth would somebody thank God for a beating? The apostles rejoiced because they perceived rightly that their dishonor by the world was in fact an honor bestowed upon them by god in that they were receiving the same kind of treatment as their savior which meant they were doing precisely what he wanted them to do jesus had promised earlier in his ministry that those who followed him would walk the same kind of path that he did not to the same degree but a similar path. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. He said, it hated me first. The hatred of the world was a sign to the apostles of the favor of God. That they suffered for their witness was a sign that they had succeeded in being faithful to him. That's why I can say that suffering is success doesn't mean all suffering is success. It's not a success to suffer because we sinned or because we were jerks or because we were annoying. Suffering is success when it is the byproduct of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. If we live like him, if we live for him, then we will suffer like him. And that, my friends, is not something to be afraid of. It's not something to be afraid of. It's to be embraced. To share to some degree in Christ's suffering is the intention of every Christian. When you say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, you are saying, I will pick up a cross and follow you. 
Now, we don't have to manufacture suffering. We don't have to ask for it. We don't have to go out looking for it. We just have to recommit once again to be faithful witnesses, and suffering will come in its own time and at its own way. So, not only should we not be afraid of opposition to the gospel, if anything, we should be afraid of the absence of opposition to the gospel. For that may, not necessarily, but may indicate that we are not being faithful witnesses. But as we are, at the times that the Lord deems appropriate, God will honor us by allowing the world to dishonor us. And so let us now decide in our hearts, each of us, that it is indeed a great honor to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. A great honor to suffer after the pattern of our Savior. My friends, don't fear suffering for Jesus. Don't fear being called names. Don't fear marginalization. Don't fear job loss. Don't fear the loss of relationships. Don't even fear imprisonment or death. For the one who called you to it will sustain you through it. Share the gospel no matter what comes. The Lord will lend you his power to remain faithful. And listen, on the other side of whatever suffering is in store for us, there awaits a treasure. A reward for suffering. Jesus Christ himself, who is worth every sacrifice that he calls us to make for him. May we all share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Join me in praying that we would. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the reward of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So that as moments of suffering and opposition and trials come, we would know what we are working and waiting for. That great day. When the trumpets will blast and the Lord will descend. But until then, it is well with our souls. For you are with us. Every step of the way. Every suffering we face are protected by you. And you are upholding us as we make our way through it. So, empower each of my friends here to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Inspire them again to witness to his death and resurrection. And may their witness bear wonderful fruit here in Pasadena. May you draw unbelievers into their midst through their faithful witnessing of the gospel for the gospel is your power to save may this church wield it faithfully and fruitfully i ask in jesus name